This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of Basically and another home recorded intro from me. Sorry about the sound quality. It'll all be sorted again next week. Anyway, this is the final uh, episode that was recorded during our live podcast episode and was by far the big surprise of the night. Um, I don't think anyone anticipated how fascinating, moving, intriguing and insightful Rory O'Neill would be in talking about Panty Bliss, where it came from, the genesis of it and the power that um, drag has had in his life and in all of our lives, um, particularly in this country. So buckle up, listen in, and I hope you enjoy this episode with Rory O'Neill. Hello. I was delighted when um, I found out that you were coming as Rory and not as Panty because I want to talk about Panty and I feel like you can't really talk about <laughs> someone to them. Uh, so the wig is here to represent Panty. Um, for those guests present and listening who don't know you, Rory, give us a little bit of a, a brief history of you. My husband tells me you're from Mayo, which <laughs> is something he tells me about everyone who is from Mayo. <laughs> Um, it's a thing we do for Mayo. Um, I'm from Mayo. Um, uh, I hate the fact that it says in my passport Galway because I was born in the hospital in Galway. Oh, wow. Because uh, I'm from South County Mayo. That always bothers me. Um, I think we should, you know, have legislation to change that. So, you know, <laughs> down thing. the place where you were literally born when you're actually, you know. Um, so I'm from Mayo. Um, my nieces and nephews are also just across the border and that really pisses me off In too. Galway. Yeah, that they think of themselves as being from Galway. Um uh, um, I went to school over here um, in Gormston because me um, granny lived in Betty's town, just right there. Um, uh, then I went to art college because I thought I'd meet another gay there. Um, Did you? I met one other gay though. There was one other out gay there, and he's still my best friend to this day. Aww. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, and then I went. To, art college for X number of years and then um well actually and this actually ties in with something that PJ was talking about because I finished college in 1989 uh, I think and um, I was two <laughs> uh, bitch <laughs> <laughs> I still look fucking amazing you though. do you do <laughs> um and you know so you know, homosexuality wasn't decriminalized in this country until 1993. So I spent all of my college years, you know, illegal, essentially. Um, Were you out public for all that time? Yes, I was. In as yeah. much as you could be, yeah. Yeah. Like, it wasn't like, you know, the law wasn't enforced very much. Um, so it's not like, you know, the cops were trailing through hairdressers and arresting colorists or anything. But, um, but it had this sort of, you know, dampening, you know, freezing effect on the community and also so, kind of allowed like behavior like anti-gay yeah bullying all that kind of stuff yeah and so um and like for example like nowadays if you wanted to find another gay um that would be very easy i'm sure every single person in this audience could tell you where the george is you know um 
but you know, when I was a college student, that just was not the case. All gay. You're also allowed bars, to plug your own bar. Well, well or a panty bar, yeah. But <laughs> but but at at that time, like literally finding another gay person was something very difficult. Like like you know, I used to, I always joke and say you need to get Angela Lansbury on the case just to find another fucking gay person. Um, How you did know, you before the internet? Um, before all of that, and it's a, and I used to sometimes come into town. You know, I get the bus into town, and I like. I used to go to Mark's Brothers Cafe, which is now what Simon's Place, you know, Simon's Place in George Street. He originally had a cafe, which is now the Mexican place, kind of opposite the George, and it was called Mark's Brothers. And there was kind of a rumor that, you know, gays would sometimes go there, you know. And so I like sort of go there, and that's when I see something, you know, he seems like a gay, but you can't just walk up to a stranger in the street. Are you gay? Can you introduce me to your friends? I mean, you know, you, you couldn't do that. And so um, it was literally hard just to find another, like I literally went to our college because I, a large part of my reasoning was I might find another gay there. So um, I, I eventually did find them. You know, Hot Press magazine used to have this small ad in the back, always that would say, um, uh, icebreakers. And it was basically a meeting for gays to meet other gays. And it was, they used to have a, a monthly meeting on the first Thursday or something of every month in the Clarence Hotel. And this was before you two bought the Clarence, you know, back in the Clarence Hotel was like, you know, a place where priests would stay when they were up to meet the bishop or whatever. And then... Um, <laughs> And I sort of went along to a to a meeting there in in, in a room, um, icebreakers, and it was like you know, a circle of chairs, and there was like you know I don't know eight or ten like nervous looking you know you know amateur gays, and then two proper gays who kind of led the meeting and gave you a cup of tea and biscuits. It you know? sounds like an AA meeting. It's exactly like an AA meeting. So like you know, and then you say hi, my name is Rory, and I'm a homosexual. You know, exactly like an AA. I'm sure there was an AA meeting going on next door. Um, <laughs> And, and, and I hated it. I'm not very good at chair circles and that kind of thing. But at the end of the meeting, the two gays said, you know, well, now if, if you, we're going to go to a gay bar if anybody would like to come. And I was like, I'm in. And they took us to one which was um, in the Powerscore Townhouse Center. It was called Hooray Henry's. And, um, and I went in there and I was like, okay, I found this is what I needed. I found other gays. And I went home that night with like a, a hairdresser with frosted tips to his bed sitting at mine. So, you know, <laughs> never looked back. And then... Um, and, and at the time, it was like that. You know, all, even the, the, the kind of bars and things, they were always in basements of Georgian houses somewhere, you know, you know completely hidden and separate. Like, um, you know, I, and nowadays, I kind of joke, it's kind of like the, you know, the difference between the muggles and, the, and you know, and like, you know, and being taken to Hurry Henry's is like my letter from Hogwarts, you know. Um, and then we're like dancing, you know, to fucking the Pointer Sisters and take, you know, sniffing poppers, you know, in these basement you know, flats off Eli Street, you know, Eli Place or something, you know, while the muggles are on their way to work upstairs, yeah, you know, yeah, over yeah. Our heads. Um, you know, really felt like that. And, and, and although that was fun and exciting and I loved every moment of it and all, you know, Ireland didn't want me. Ireland didn't want us. And so the, as soon as I was finished college, I think I worked for like six months more in, in the part-time jobs I had in a restaurant, save up a bit more money. And then I ran out of here. Like I ran away because um, I didn't want to be Ireland, in Ireland, or, you know, Irish even at the time, because Ireland had absolutely rejected me, and everybody liked me. Um, and so, you know, there was no, I wasn't like, oh, I have to get the boat, you know. Um, yeah. Before, no, like, I was see like, ya. see you later, sayonara, bitches. And, you know, and I was off. And, and at the time, you know, I had small country, small town syndrome you know I just wanted to get to the biggest and most exciting city in the world because as far as I was concerned you know Ireland was this you know anti-queer awful place and you know other 
place would be like. So I literally had to go in because pre-internet, I went into the uh, library in the ILAC Center, got an encyclopedia and looked up largest city in the world. Oh and the, the top two were Mexico City and Tokyo, Yokohama. And I was like, mm, Tokyo. And, and I went to Tokyo. So and was this it... is what reminded me of, you know, PJ's story, just is about, you know, other Irish people and all that. You know, I spent five years in Tokyo and, um, you know, you know, Japanese people know nothing about Ireland. They don't know where it is. They don't know what it is. They know nothing. The only ones that do are people who are Joycean scholars and this, you know, whatever. <laughs> they know everybody else hasn't a fucking clue. And so you say to a Japanese, they say, where are you from? And I'll say, well, I'm from Ireland, though. And they think I'm saying Iceland. And, and I used to, you know, maybe I spent two years correcting people. No, no, not Iceland, Ireland. And, uh, and then after a while, you just give up. You know, there's no point. So I would just go, yeah, I'm from Iceland. Yeah. You know, and then they'd be like, oh, you must be very good at skiing. Yes, I'm so good at skiing, you know. Um, and, and, you know, so they really knew nothing about it. And, and I had been there about, I think, three or four years maybe when I read in the kind of English language newspaper that the Irish community, um, and, you know, the Irish community was minuscule, tiny. Like, I, had, I would go a year without meeting or hearing of another Irish person. But um, that for the first time ever, they were going to be celebrating St. Patrick's Day and they're going to have, like, a little parade thing in when you know when the sort of center spots and uh, and I was just like oh god you know I must remember to avoid that area that day because I didn't even want to meet another Irish person and um, I didn't want to have to fall into that oh pretending to like football and you know oh yeah mayo for Sam whatever you know <laughs> like I, I I didn't want to have to just even you know fuck yeah. around with that stuff I just had no interest in, in anything to do with Ireland and um and at that time, I was working in this, like, giant seven-story nightclub, you know, in an industrial district. Like, you know, the wildest, insanest kind of place was you it can a imagine. Gay, like, was there no, a gay it scene there? No, thing, okay. But, you know, they were achingly cool. So, okay. you know, so they definitely wanted the foreign drag queen running around inside, you know. And um, so I was sort of working in there, and I remember going that night, and... Uh, you know, the manager comes up to me immediately and goes, ah, panties, uh, there are there are some people coming tonight who are also from Iceland, and they are coming to celebrate King Patrick's birthday. <laughs> and, and I'm just like, oh, fuck. So I'm just like, do not tell the people from Iceland that I'm also from Iceland. And then I ran around the whole club to tell every other staff member, do not tell anybody from Iceland that I'm also from Iceland, because I just didn't want to have to deal with it now obviously i hate that but obviously my attitude has changed and, and all about ireland has changed is you know it's why my attitude changed because ireland's attitude changed you know but to me yeah but at that time you know i was running out of here and you know the idea of bumping into other irish people was just absolute anathema to me i have multiple questions um <laughs> one is and i don't know which direction to go with it because they're sort of linked. One is, was it the, was it the decriminalization in 1993 that made you go, okay, well, maybe I'll come back? Or was it the more marriage equality thing? But ad ad attached to that is a question about how Panty became born. And did you always envisage Panty to be a... Uh, a palatable face for a political message in the way that she has become? Well, let me, um, I'll, answer, I'll start with the panty part that, um, 
before I had gone to um, Japan, I had been doing some nutty drag here in those basement you know, nightclubs. But there was no drag scene here. Um, so there weren't other drag queens to be doing stuff. And it's not like today where you know, drag is more popular than it ever has been. And it's on your TV constantly. And there are famous drag queens ever. Like the idea that it was a career was just nuts. Like it, it, nobody got into drag for that at the time. And um, I was just doing because it was stupid fun. Okay. You know, and um, and you know when you're 20, the job is literally people pay you to run around making a fool of yourself and Lip get drunk. And, yeah, like okay. they literally pay you to get drunk, and um, you know, what 20 year old doesn't want that job? Like it's the perfect job for 20. Like sometimes people say, "Why did you get into drag?" And I'm always like, "Why the fuck did you not get into drag?" <laughs> um, but so. Um, I, I went to Japan, and at that time, the, you know, I used to do a different sort of drag vibe because you know it was just it was much more arty, art school nuttery, and I called myself Letitia. Okay. Very male, called after a pet lamb I had had. <laughs> and, and, um, and then when I was in Tokyo, I, um, I became very good friends with an American drag queen just by accident. We met in a you know club one night, who's from Atlanta, Georgia. Which, which is kind of the spiritual home of drag in many, in, in a lot of ways. Um, it has a long, deep drag tradition in Atlanta. Um, a lot of famous queens, come, including RuPaul, have come out of Atlanta and all of that. Um, and, and we started doing a double act together in Japan. And our sort of our USP was that we were like foreign drag queens. And so we were in lots of like pop videos and, you know, ads and, you know, because this is in the 90s when there was kind of a mini drag explosion. Um, for example, RuPaul's big song, Supermodel came out around then and all of that. Um, and, uh, and because we were foreign, that made us kind of interesting to them. And so, so you know, we, we did, we toured with Cindy Lauper around Japan where we were like dancing in the background to all the various oh, songs to push her around and things, and whatever. And, um, but if you're in, and, and her name was Lurlene, Lurlene Wallace, it's after, it's an in-joke. If you're from Atlanta, you'd be like, <laughs> but um, <laughs> you're not. So, uh, <laughs> well, I'm from Mallow. So. <laughs> But um, Lurleen and Letitia are absolutely awful names if you want to make a career in Japan. Because, you know, Japanese, they don't, have, they don't have the L sound or the R sound. They have another sound that's sort of in between those two sounds. And so their ears aren't attuned to the different stars. So they can't differentiate between L and R in any way. And also it means they just can't remember things. So they could never remember our names, Lurleen and Letitia. Like you could not pick worse names. So one day we said, oh, well, we, we need like a group name, um, you know, you know, like ABBA. But our intention was we'd still be Agneta and Frida, you know, yes, but we'd be yes. ABBA. And ABBA's easy to remember. So we thought, oh, we better come up with a name and it should sound cutesy because, you know, they, they like that, you know, Japanese culture loves, you know, kawaii, cutesy things. Um, and it, it should preferably be uh, English words. Um, because that's our unique selling point, we're foreigners. Um, but preferably words that they was easy to remember and to pronounce, um, and maybe even words that they knew already, you know? So the name we chose was Candy Panty, because they used the word candy, and they used the word panty, and Candy Panty is cutesy sounding and stupid and whatever. So we were Candy Panty, but they immediately just started calling us Candy and Panty. Um, and I used to wear really short skirts at the time. That was my look at the time, kind of 60s thing. So my, I was always, my knickers were always flashing. So I got the panty end of it. And, um, and in Japan, that is fine. You know, 
And then, you know, a number of years later, <laughs> I came back to Ireland. Like, it's a, it's a bad name. Like, no one would choose that name here. And, you know, people hear it and they think I'm some sort of stripper or something. <laughs> and, and, and when, you know, I ended up sort of moving out of just the, the drag scene where, like, you know, like if Pat Kenny was first saying That's it, like, he would hesitate first, you know, before he would say uh, it. Pat Yeah. Um, and, and, that, and when I first came back here and realized that, I used to say Pandora Panty Bliss. Now, Pandora was never my name, but I faked it. So, so people would think, ah, Panty's just a nickname. And, you know, Pandora. And to this day, I often see people write that all the time. Pandora, Pandora Panty, Panty Bliss. Bliss. Um, anyway, so that's the name part. Um, I came back to Ireland basically after five years in Togo because um, I just felt like a change. Um, you know, so five years, I've, what year are we in now? Uh, in 1995, I came okay. back to Ireland. And I really just came back here. I thought I was going to visit you know, and then sort of move on. That was kind of vaguely my plan. But in 1995, it was a really exciting time to be here. Um, homosexuality had been decriminalized in 93. So, you know, the gay scene was really beginning to blossom in a way. So I could actually get some work. Um, although I mostly at that time worked in straight venues but you know ones who were trying to be super cool <laughs> and, and and also Dublin was really and Ireland was really changing at that time I mean for the very first time foreigners were moving here and we weren't all moving away um, the city like even in front of your eyes was changing like the Lewis was being built and buildings were going up um, but it was also at a time when there was a, it was b before the full-on Celtic Tigers so there were loads of like half empty or empty venues lying around, you know, hangers from the 80s. And you're like, and people say, yeah, yeah, pay, give me 50 quid and you can do whatever you want there, you know. So you could like put on stupid nights and do things and there were spaces to do all that, you know, all stuff that all got eaten up. And then nowadays, you know, if you want to put on some crazy homemade club night, like it's very hard to find a venue, but then that was easy. And, and young people were staying for the very first time and Ireland was beginning to look outward. It just felt like this is exciting. You know, there's a, a new Ireland is appearing and, 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 you know, you can be part of it. And, and, you know, for years then I was involved in the alternative Miss Ireland. And, you know, that, that was very much, obviously that was a fundraiser for HIV and, had, you know, and it was fun and all that. But it very much had at its core this idea of, you know, queering the idea of Ireland, um, you know, that... Uh, Ireland could be the kind of place that would have the alternative as Ireland. You know, a stupid contest that absolutely anybody could enter. It didn't matter, you know, what you had or didn't have between your legs. And, you know, you, anybody could enter that contest and just be stupid. And, um, you know, and in a way, you know, I'm often accused of being a gay rights activist. Um, but that's never how I've really seen it. Well, I've seen it as, um, well, I jokingly say, I'm a proponent of elasticity. And, and what I mean by that is, um, I had felt very rejected by Ireland. And I'd felt rejected by Ireland because the definition of Irishness was very rigid at that time. And if you didn't tick all these boxes, that you liked, you know, GAA and you liked U2 and all this kind of stuff, yeah. you know, you somehow weren't considered fully Irish, you know, that you, you couldn't be Irish and also be me. And so the alternative is Ireland and everything else I've ever been involved in really in some way was connected to this sort of project of, of you know, expanding the definition of Irishness or making the definition of Irishness more elastic 
um, so that it could stretch around people like me. Um, and so you could be the kind of person who wants to run around the stage in the Olympia with green glitter rubbed in your arse and still be fully Irish. Um, as long as it's green glitter. <laughs> yeah, it has to be green. Um, you know, so to me, it was all about that. And I felt that in the, in the 90s, it was the first time I felt that that's actually possible or, you know, that might be achievable. And, you know, and obviously then, you know, the marriage equality referendum and all that, you know, it, I, I do feel that a lot of that project was absolutely achieved then. That's how it felt to me anyway in 2015, you know, that, that now you, you could be all those things and also be Irish. Taking a break from the show to tell you about our sponsor, humdingermortgages.ie, your new gaff without the faff. Humdinger are an award-winning mortgage brokerage and they specialise in finding the right mortgage for you. The best part is that you deal with the broker and they deal with every major bank in the Irish market so you don't have to trawl around talking to loads of people. They also make the best recommendation on what's the best way to proceed for you specifically and they stay at your side to help you at every step of the way from application to drawing down your mortgage. They're in the mortgage business, right? Not the application business. They have absolutely no interest in putting you through the ringer and getting you to fill out loads of forms without getting a mortgage at the end. And they're really honest from the get-go about what the problems might be with your application. But then they don't abandon you. They will stay by your side and give you the best advice on how to make sure that you are successful the next time you apply. They specialise in helping first-time buyers, people looking to trade up and people like me who are looking to save ourselves some money by switching our mortgage for a better rate. And like for me, I'm going to switch my mortgage. I'm working with Humdinger because like a reduction of even 0.5% on my mortgage rate can save me like 30 grand in interest over the whole term of my mortgage. Mortgages are the biggest financial decision you are ever going to make. So take advantage of speaking to experts and go to humdingermortgages.ie to begin your journey. So while I have you, I'm going to take the opportunity to um, take you hostage for a minute and tell you about the merchandise that we are selling. We have notebooks and pens which are branded with the basically branding and you should buy them. You should buy them because it's a lovely notebook. Who doesn't need a notebook? If you are a Headstuff podcast member, if you buy the notebook, you get the pen for free. It supports me. It supports the podcast. It supports the producers, the people who work on the show and means that we can continue to make these podcasts and give them to you for free. If you want to become a Headstuff podcast member, if you get a lot from the podcast and you think, God, I'd like to support Stephanie and the podcast, you can become a Headstuff podcast member for five euro plus that. Uh, or you can give more if you want to. Go to headstuffpodcast.com and you can click register there and you pick a podcast. You can pick up to three podcasts. If you pick three podcasts, what happens there is that the five euro that you're giving gets split between the three podcasts that you're supporting. Or you can pick just one podcast, say you pick my podcast, then you'll get my bonus material for free and all of the bonus material for all of the other podcasts on the network. So it's a really, really good deal. Five euro, all of these special podcasts. So if you want to do that, do it. I'll be very, very grateful. The people who are in the community, the Headstuff podcast members are my favourite people. They support the podcast. They mean that you can listen to this podcast for free. It's five euro a month. I'm going to stop talking now, but I really appreciate your support. Thank you. Oh, and also, if you cannot afford to support the podcast, but you want to support the podcast, you can also give us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a good review or share the podcast with two other people. That's it. Just send the podcast to two other people who will listen to it, who you think will benefit from it. That helps to get our listeners up, which helps us get sponsorship. It's all how it works. And uh, yeah, I'd be really grateful if you do that too. Bye. I Know The Face is a movie podcast on the Headstuff Podcast Network, hosted by me, Stephen Portio, And me, Andrew Carroll. 
Our show is all about character actors, the type of performers you'll see pop up in supporting roles in blockbusters, the type of people you know the faces but not the names. Each episode we pick one particular character actor and discuss a couple of their movies, shining a light on the performer's career while giving listeners plenty of movie recommendations. So the show is a must for cinema lovers. Subscribe to I Know That Face wherever you get podcasts and follow us on Twitter at I Know That Face P1. How did it come about that you sort of moved out of the sphere sphere of AM Alternative Miss Ireland um, performing either in straight clubs or gay bars for for people into this sort of political space? Yes, um, you've been described as a gay rights activist, but an activist is a def- is definitely a term. Um, well, it, I mean, there's. A- the way that I personally see it is not, it's not a huge journey. Yes, um, I do, I now roll around on stages in nightclubs at 3 a.m., you know, pulling things out of my ass, whatever I used to do. No, because I'm 52, you know, so um, it's different in that way. But I had always, um, you know, my shows had always involved a lot of talking and, uh, you know, I, ideas. You know, I come from an art college background. And so even though I did all this stupid, nutty, you know, seeing some Coronation Street and whatever, there was always often rants and things. And and also drag queens, in a way, have always kind of occupied a special position in the community because we tend to be the ones who are on stage and have the microphone in our hand. And so there's a kind of responsibility, and certainly there was in the past, you know, to use that then. And so whenever things came up in the community, it was often a drag queen talking to you about it. And... And, you know, I think outside of the queer community, people often ha- have a kind of, they don't understand how a drag queen can say something serious. Mm-hmm. Um, because to them, it's Mrs. Brown or something, like it's just a jokey character that's made up. But the drag tradition that I come from, out of gay bars and nightclubs, you know, the, the, the line between the performance and the performer is very blurred. Um, and that's because, you know, if you go to see Mrs. Brown's show... Um, Mrs. Brown doesn't only exist within that world that's been created for her to exist in, in that performance. You know, if you meet him on the street on, you know, afterwards, um, it's not Mrs. Brown. Whereas the drag tradition that I come out of is very different. We are getting taxis between gigs and we are performing every week in your regular slot in the gay bar. And so there are regular people who are coming to see you every week or, you know, and they want to, you know, come up to you when they see you at the bar and they say, oh, How's your mother? Mm-hmm. And they don't expect a Mrs. Brown fake answer about a fake mother. They're literally asking you, how's your mother? And so, so the, the drag tradition that I come out of, um, you, you know, the, 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 the drag character is just another version of you. And how do you think it, it started that people who weren't attending a drag performance started to listen? Well, you know, sometimes I think... You know, people outside of that community, like I said, they have a little, there's a disconnect and they don't understand how drag can say something serious. But, um, but there's also this weird thing that, you know, being in drag makes your voice louder. Mm-hmm. Um, people see you immediately and, 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 and despite what people might say to you, shout at you at Twitter or something, they actually do hear you better. Um, because you, you, you've made yourself bigger and more powerful and more colorful and more attention grabbing and, and all of that. And so, um, so I, you know, I was just doing my thing. Um, and, you know, and I'd often talk about serious subjects in my show and, um, 
and you know, and that prides and that alternative desires and everything, you know, there was always a political element. And we were, you know, you know, the, and the campaign for marriage equality, for example, had started many years beforehand, and we were discussing it and you know, chanting about it and making speeches about it at prides and all sorts of things, um, you know, long before 2015. So to the gay community, me making serious points or whatever is absolutely perfectly reasonable to them. They had no issue or problem with that. You know, but for the wider community, you know, just circumstances, the whole stupid thing with RTE and the Saturday Night Show and all that thrust me into their, you know, view yeah, yeah. in a way. Um, but, you know, it wasn't like, you know, I was, you know, just falling into this thing with no preparation. I spent years discussing these because things, giving out about these that's things. That's the thing, I think for people that you sort of, for people who weren't aware of that, you burst onto the scene, yeah. onto the mainstream scene and were like so articulate and so passionate and we could tell that like I was aware of you because I worked in theatre. Yeah, and, so theatre people all knew me for years and all the queers obviously had known me for years. You know, probably the designer type people had known me for years because I had it in my art college back and all that. But General Joe Public didn't. Was it but, Ireland's call? Was it the Abbey... What was the threshold? Do you like? Do you think where yeah, definitely the Abbey speech made people take me seriously in a way that you know, and you know, and I have real had to struggle with lots of things around that. I mean, you know, for example, for years I had you know just give people a brief if they if they're not aware of what happened in the Abbey. Um, well, I'd been getting sued by people, <laughs> you know, and it was in the run. The, the marriage equality reference hadn't been called or anything, but it was kind of in the ether that there might be one. And then um, while I was sort of in this, um, in the middle of this high sort profile of scandal, case. yes, high profile defamation business, um, the Abbey, uh, the, the, the Abbey had a show. People often think that I did some like, you know, unique thing. I didn't. The Abbey had had a show running for months. And the show was set in Dublin in 1915 during the lockout. It's called The Risen People. And then um, it's like, okay, see, and uh, at the end of every single performance, they did a noble call. And a noble call, if people don't know, is kind of like a, an old Dublin pub tradition, like a party piece, where you answer the noble call and you get up in the pub and you do your thing. Sing Caledonia or yeah, something. Yeah, whatever. And so, you know, to tie in with this show, at the end of every single performance, and there had been 300 performances or something, um, they'd invited a whole vast range of people and said, yeah, you got 10 minutes, you can get up and you just do whatever you want. So they had musicians, poets, thinkers, politicians, writers, um, activists, just a, a huge range of people. And so they had just asked, they had asked me to do it. Now, they had also just by kind of accident asked me to do the very final performance. So I was going to be the very last uh, um, noble call. And, um, and I know the people in the Abbey very well. I literally live across the road from the Abbey. And I'd had my show in the Peacock a number of times. Um, I'd done my show on the main stage just a few months previous to that. Um, and at the time, the director, Fia, was there. And, um, and he asked me to do it. And to be honest, at the time, there was a lot going on. I thought, oh, fuck, I don't want to have to do another thing, you know. Um, but I kind of felt like, you know, I owe them. And, uh, and I, I just said to Fia, can I just say whatever I want? And he said, yes, it's a lie. You know, can't stop you. And, and that appealed to me at the time, because at that time, um, I'd go on radio or television or something to try and defend my thing, but I'd have to forget this first, get this lecture from a producer told me all the things that I couldn't say and people I couldn't mention. And, you know, so I just like, I felt like, ah. um, so they're fine. Okay. But I honestly thought that the only people who would ever hear or see that speech were the people who were in the auditorium that night. I mean, I didn't know it was being filmed. 
I, I, even if I had the idea that all these people might want to watch on YouTube a 10 minute speech about oppression, like, you know, I, I, none of that. I'm not some Machiavellian genius, genius. I was literally doing this thing. It was a Saturday night, so I had to then jump into a cab and go off to the bar to do my fucking scenes in Coronation Street, you know? <laughs> and um, so I just like, you know, and I was angry and pissed off at the time, so I really had a lot to get off my chest, you know, and I did. Um, and that then, in a way, that did change everything, because then suddenly people take everything I say very seriously. And, you know, one of the joys of being a drag queen is you can say loads of shit, you know, and not really mean it, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and I have had to sort of struggle a bit with that, um, because I got into drag because it was confronting and discombobulating and you know, punk and two fingers to everything and everybody and, and, you know, and stupid fun and, you know, and it doesn't take gender seriously and, and all that stuff. And then suddenly, you know, and, you know, for years then when I was doing my theater shows, I'd run up against this like, oh, well, I saw a drag queen before in Lanzarote once, so why would I want to go and see a theater show with a drag queen in it? You know, <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And, and so I spent years trying to get people to take me more seriously. And then suddenly people take everything I say so seriously, you know. And so I, I've struggled a bit with how to find the balance about those things. And, you know, and, and because drag has changed so much and how my people's attitude to me changed so much, in, especially in this country. But, um, you know, like, can you still be punk and discombobulating and confronting and two fingers and be on the cover of the RT guy? <laughs> like, like, I think it's, not, you I, know, it's hard. I don't really know. I think when like what you say is reported, when people like Pat Kenny are interviewing you, uh, you know, as a legitimate political voice, it's there very hard to like you're you now have the you know, the power to shape public perception and, and with that power comes, comes a, yeah. responsibility, responsibility and, and a lack yeah. of playfulness. And, and a weight. I mean, I, you know, I'm not, like I said, I'm constantly navigating all of that. But I, sort of what I did decide for my own self, you know, I sometimes change these things, but, you know, that if you come to my live show, you should fucking know what to expect. So I will say any old crap I want to and I'm not going to edit myself. But if I'm on your telly screen and, you know, or if I'm coming into your house or into yeah, your radio or you know I'm being asked in a different context about stuff then I do have to unfortunately think more carefully I guess because you know if I'm on a stage in a gay bar I can make I can be very flippant about serious subjects like oh you know HIV gender roles all this kind of stuff because that community is very comfortable with all of that stuff and so they also read my comments in the contents text and you know and in in, the, in that context you know there's a bit of you you expect the drag queen to slag everybody off and so there's a kind of a camaraderie about it but some of those comments if you then just heard them on the radio while listening to pat kenny half the people listening to you have none of that context or background and they and don't understand where you know that voice is coming is. from so it becomes a kind of a yeah a responsibility that is isn't fun to be honest um i have two follow-up questions um one is what do you think after marriage equality and then we had um the abortion referendum what do you think is next and you know the political version of panty what does what's she getting behind next or do you decide those things um, I, I, I don't really just um, things particular that, that interest me. Um, and obviously I do have you know, things that still interest me, whatever. 
Um, well, the other thing is, you know, you're not like in a position where people want you uh, to invest heavily in every cause that you would agree with. And, and there's a million causes that I agree with. But, but I can't, um, you know, rally cry for every single one. Or, or you become useless in yeah. a way. It's like highlighting a whole book. Yeah. It's like, um, you know, if you look at someone's Twitter feed, it's just constant um, petitions for a million different things or whatever. You kind of, you know, yeah. So I have to sort of go, you know, when things you know, feel real, you know, per, somehow to me. Um, and so I have, even for, for starters, um, I'm, you know, I'm still very involved in HIV activism, um, and especially in large parts of the world where they don't have access to medications and people are dying in their millions. Um, and uh, in, in a way, you know, that can be depressing at times, but also be joyful and wonderful at other times. And, you know, for me personally, um, to be at a clinic in Mozambique and you're under a tree, and yet I recognize every single thing that's happening because I, you know, even though my clinic looks entirely different, I also recognize the, the processes. And so it's amazing that I can have so much in common with some pregnant woman from Mozambique who's sitting under a tree, and yet we, you know, we can laugh and joke about, you know, bloods and, um, you know, just the various things that still, and, um, so I do a lot in that area um, because obviously it's very personal to me. Um, I've been living with HIV for 27 years. Um, yes, I'm very fit and healthy, and you know, it's all good. Um, but I'm lucky to be living in this country for that. Um, so there's that. Um, obviously, you know, issues around gender and all that are obviously you know personal to me and of interest to me. Um, so those things I still do very things around. And then the other one is, is side ones, um, you know, Irish people have still a real problem with ingrained, deep-rooted, um, you know, a prejudice against travelers. And I grew up um, with, surrounded by traveler neighbors. Um, all of our neighbors were travelers. Um, the boys I set aside in all through primary school were all traveler boys. Um, uh, on Christmas Day, my dad still drags us around to visit the various, you know, grand doms of the traveler community, you know, the old um, women you know, who run things. Um, so I'm very um, comfortable um, with the traveler community, have been for a very long time. Um, and so it, it, it always stuns me when I, you know, meet Irish people who have absolutely no connection to travelers and they've never, you know, met a traveler, never had a conversation with a traveler, never. Um, and they only see the bad stuff and have no context for any of that stuff. Um, so um, I do think so that's another one. And then finally, um, I think direct provision is an absolute horror show and a shame. And all the things that we say now about Magdalene laundries and mother and baby homes, and um, you know, we'll be saying about direct provision. You know, well, we already are, um, but they say very same things that we're, we, you know, express horror at now about those things um, are happening right now at the exact same time as we're chatting um, in in direct provision. So um, I think that's an absolute stain and. Um, and that's my, the other one, you know. And I'm just old enough, to, you know, like I've, I went to mother and baby home with my best friend who, you know, went to a mother and baby home and we got the bus down together and, um, you know, I'll never forget it. That's, there is something about my generation and the disconnect from, from, like we hear about it now as things are changing and governments are making like public apologies. But there is a huge like disconnect from that Ireland and the Ireland that I know. Yeah, um, thank God. 
I mean, let's not thank him, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> thank God. My God, I mean Dolly Parton. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Dolly Parton. Um, thank, thank, thank reason and sanity and uh, compassion. My final question, to change the tone slightly, is um, how long does it take to turn into panty? <laughs> and what tan do you use? And also, how do you do it? What, which do I use? Tan. Um, I don't use tan. Uh, is, do you wear tights that are tan? I do, yeah. All oh, right. Uh, do no, you shave your legs? I don't. Is, I if that's a personal question. Well, I am blessed um, that I, you know, I, I have very light. Oh yeah. There, there, I mean, there's very little of it there, and it's also very light in color, so uh, that's not a huge issue for me. And I always wear tights. Um, uh, obviously, you know, panties look has changed over the years, and you know, on the stuff that I used to wear all the time that I wouldn't wear now because you know she's fifty-two, um, and. You know, drag queens have all different looks and everything. and um, But I think Panty's look also helped Panty along the way because I think if Panty was one of those drag queens that looked like a space alien, yeah, you know, she couldn't really have done the things that she wanted to do or be taken seriously at times when she wanted to be taken seriously. But if you look like a barrister's wife, yeah. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> um, you know, then it works in those contexts. Um, um, I, I need at least two hours. I'd like to have two and a half hours, and that doesn't that doesn't include the pre preparation, yes, you know, okay. shaving and whatever. But I mean, I like to sit down in the makeup mirror at least two hours before anybody needs me, um, because it is a, it's a special effects makeup job. It's not just highlighting what you have, you know. Yes. It's 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 obliterating as much of what you have as possible, and then painting on a totally other person. Did someone teach you how to do this? Or no, and that's one of the ways that drags has changed so dramatically you know when i first got into drag i had to make my own shoes because you couldn't get shoes that fit me you know like that would be stage ready i have size men's 10 feet what size are your feet well i'm a men's 10 10 and a half yeah so we have the same size feet and the only high shoes that i could get like i went to this place in marlebon which has loads of like high heel shoes for drag queens yeah and there it's impossible to get shoes for women so i wear runners because i'm also tall enough and i feel like a giraffe when i wear heels but the only shoes heels that i can get are shoes for drag queens well nowadays we'll talk afterwards and i got some internet addresses for you but um for a long time, you know, you would have to go to like just kind of stripper webs, web, websites. They're just like stripper oh, platforms or drag queens or whatever. Um, you know, it's much better nowadays. But, you know, in the 80s, there was no internet. And so the only place you could get a size 10, you know, a lady shoe in a size 10, you know, it was like a big and tall shop down the Keys. And they just had sort of like lesbian flats, you know, and <laughs> um, not stage ready. So, you know, I would have to like, maybe get you know a mule or a slip on and cut the back out and add something and then make my own sort of platform soles ever i made a pair of boots you know using by building up you know the platform out of cork tiles and you know all this kind of stuff um that you know wigs at those time were wildly expensive and you know hard to even come by um you know so you'd get one wig and you'd have to treat it so well you know whatever for years um but you know and and then makeup you know, I think of the first time, first time I did drag and there are pictures of it. Um, and, you know, I look absolutely horrifying. And that used to be a thing that all drag queens went through, you know, for like 10 years, they look pretty shitty. Um, Until you refined the look. Yeah. And because over time you get better trial and error and then you meet other drag queens and they'd say, oh, here's a way to cover your eyebrow and here's a thing to do that and whatever. And you get little tips. Whereas nowadays, you know, you can just go onto YouTube drag queen transformation, makeup tutorial, whatever. And there are thousands of detailed videos of people showing you exactly 
what to do. You can go online, you type in drag queen wigs, and there are you know, thousands of websites. The, 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 you know, even a pretty decent wig costs you almost nothing because some Chinese kid has made it for you. Um, there are people who make a living styling wigs for drag queens. You don't even have to learn how to you know, style them. You know, um, all of that is presented for you sort of on a plate. So then I sort of see these young drag queens like, a, you know, their first time ever, and they look pretty fucking good, you know, better than the 52-year-old woman with pandemic pounds, you know. And, uh, you know, and that is brand new thing. Like, all of the things are presented to you immediately and, and in ways that I couldn't have dreamed or imagined, like this huge selection of wigs and costumes and special you know, jewelry and there's people who you know now on their Etsy sites making jewelry just for drag queens and you know that just none of that existed. So that has all changed so much. And now I see these young drags and you know they think it's a perfectly legitimate career choice. I'm going to be a drag queen because they can name 50 famous drag queens who've made, you know, millions of dollars from being on your know, RuPaul's drag race or whatever, you know, and they're famous and and another gays want to be them. You know, in the gay scene for years, people thought the drags were fun and liked them, but nobody wanted to be one. Yeah. yeah. You know, because you weren't going to get laid for years, you know, whatever. Um, that has all changed. It's an entirely different world. And, um, and, and well, you know, I know you're probably wondering, so I'll finish up with this thing about drag. So um, part of me doesn't like it. Doesn't like the change? It's a part of me, I mean, part of me loves it, that, that now there's so many more career opportunities, and I've benefited even from those things too. And, and I don't have to explain so much what I do to people because they've all seen them on their telly and they all have their favorite drag queen and, you know, all of that stuff. That is great. And also I encourage everybody to do drag at some point, male or female, just do it sometimes. And now so many people do do that. But at the same time, like I said earlier, I did get into it because it was punk. It was absolute rejection of, of all of the things that you expected of me about gender roles and how a boy should behave and how a girl should behave and what they should look like. And, um, and in a way, drag's real power, especially for gay men, I think is that you, know, you have all of these things that people used to hold against you and used to you know, weaponize against you, your femininity, your gayness, your limp wrist, your, your love of Kylie Minogue, you know, all the stuff that people used to attack you for. You could you're sort of taking all that stuff and you're actually celebrating and turning into kind of armor in a way. And you're sort of giving all of those assholes like a glittered finger, you know, <laughs> it's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen in your life, you know? And, and so there's a real sort of power in that. Um, and part of the joy was that it, that was sort of anti-establishment in a way. But it's so and, mainstream and now. It's, now. it's not so anti-establishment and all of that. And I do a little bit worry about that. It's become very blandified. And like I went to one of those big traveling RuPaul's Drag Race shows things in, in the Olympia. And I just couldn't believe that the, you know, 70% of the audience were, you know, 18-year-old girls. And I was like, wow, you know, this isn't drag's natural audience, you know. But in a way, in order to, in order to play to that audience, you have to defang stuff in, in some ways or make it a bit more mainstream, take off its rough edges. And I like the rough edges of it. You know, that's what was exciting to me. And so I do, in some ways, you know, I'm unsure about some of that stuff. But at the same time, you know, sometimes I'll wander into some gay bar somewhere, usually when I'm on holidays, because I never go out of my home, you know, but um, and I'll see some like 20 year old kid who's up there, 
in a dress he borrowed from his sister. Um, <laughs> and it's brilliant that he has a sister he can do. You know, that wouldn't have happened in the 80s. Um, he's wearing this some you know, cheap wig he got you know, on the internet, and he has no idea how to style it yet, and whatever. And he's kind of a mess. And he's jumping around, you know, lip syncing to Katy Perry, whatever it is, living his absolute Katy Perry fantasy. And it's sort of terrible. And that kid has never had a political thought in his life. But that actually doesn't really matter because what he's doing is still a political act. Um, he is, you know, just getting up and living your Katy Perry fantasy in public you know, as a 20-year-old boy. In spite of all the expectations on you. Yeah, exactly. You know, it is still a political act. Even if he doesn't recognize it consciously as such, it still is. And so I think no matter how mainstream in some ways that it gets or how defanged, there is always at its core a kind of a, you know, a radical queerness that I'll always love it for. And... You know, I am 52 now, and do I want to be running around a nightclub at 4 a.m. and all that? No, I am not able to do that anymore. But I'm glad that there still are kids doing that. Um, I still, at, when it comes down to it, I still love drag for all the reasons that I loved it in the first place. So, you know, I have a lot to be thankful to Panty for. And we have a lot to be thankful to Panty for, to be honest. I think uh, you've made... Uh, a huge contribution to Irish life Irish political life and the way that we experience things um, ladies and gentlemen Rory O'Neill this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network a hub for the creative and the curious shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.